What was that night like when the votes rolled in? Oh, at first we were like, hmm, you know, it's all right. It's not bad. And then some of the working class labor constituencies, places like Sunderland and uh, Hull and these places started coming in and we were winning them. And we were winning them by margins that we never thought even possible. And I, I, I will, ne well, hopefully we'll never forget the looks on the faces of the people like standing around me, the general secretary of the UK Independence Party standing next to me and he's just like aghast, couldn't believe it. We just, you know, everybody's hugging at just every time somewhere is coming in. It's unbelievable. Um, and you know, there was nothing, there was nothing remotely like it. We, we go out the next, we go out in the morning, we're on, we're on the college green, which is right opposite parliament. And we're singing. We're singing Royal Britannia and we're waving <laughs> flags and everyone's exhausted because they've been up all night. But it was it was incredible. And of course, Nigel gives the gives the the most amazing one liner at, you know, 6 a.m. when the dawn is breaking. He says he says, dare to dream that the dawn is breaking on an independent United Kingdom. And that was it. That was it. He didn't need to say any more than that. Yeah. That that was the phrase heard around the world at that point. And to my dying day, I will believe that without those moments and without Nigel and without Brexit, there would have been no Trump victory in 2016 here. Howdy, everyone. Welcome back to Moment of Truth, the podcast of American Moment. My name is Raheem Kassam. I'm the president of American Moment, and I'm mostly kidding. This is Saurabh Sharma, as always. But uh, our guest today, as I'm sure you've noticed by the title, is going to be Raheem Kassam, and people do get us confused sometimes. So I thought that was amusing. Before I get to everything about Raheem, though, be sure to go to AmericanMoment.org. There you can find everything else that we have cooking, the backlog of this podcast, Amcanon events that are upcoming, and more. Uh, it's going to be a really busy season here coming up, especially into the new year. So always be sure to keep tabs on everything we're doing there. Today, I was very lucky to tape with someone who's become a friend uh, and a pretty close one at that in the past year or so, Raheem J. Kassam. He's the editor-in-chief of The National Pulse, the former senior advisor to Brexit leader Nigel Farage. He's the best-selling author of No-Go Zones and Enoch Was Right, as well as a co-founder of The War Room Podcast. He was a Lincoln Fellow at the Claremont Institute, a fellow at the Bow Group Think Tank in London, and an academic advisory board member of the Institute de Sciences Sociales Economiques de et Politiques in Lyon, France. I probably butchered that. Uh, Raheem is brilliant. Uh, he's very prickly. He's actually in the middle of a fight on Twitter today about what the best steakhouse is. We do talk about that. Um, but when you get to know him a little bit, you realize this is one of the most intelligent people that the right, the international right, has, honestly. Um, he uh, is one of the few people that by uh, doesn't annoy me because you can uh, go a long way in the United States by dint of a British accent. And so they're graded on a curve typically. But I would say even if you remove the curve, Raheem really does hold up to scrutiny. We had a fun time talking about a bunch of stories that he probably shouldn't have told about his time in the UK, what the Brexit fight was like, what that night was like when Brexit actually happened, what he saw down at Mar-a-Lago uh, a few days ago when President Trump announced he was running for re-election, and uh, his take on the midterms. And uh, Raheem actually uh, was very pessimistic earlier this year that Republicans would be victorious, and he turned out to be right. So it's always worth paying attention to what Raheem has to say. Follow him on Twitter, go to The National Pulse. He is truly 
truly intelligent. And uh, if you can uh, break through the belligerence, he's, uh, he's a good friend to have and a good person to know. We'll go now to Raheem Jacobson. Raheem, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. I feel like this has been a long way coming, but you have a fascinating background, one that our guests, I think, don't even know about. Uh, you uh, present a lot younger than you actually are. You're actually a boomer old man. Uh, <laughs> tell us the tale of Raheem Kassam. Uh, you know, once from the, the, the rivers of India, did you come to, to be an American political expert? Okay, hang on. I'm not going to let a heckle like that go unaddressed. <laughs> I present younger because I'm trying to defer having to hand you over the mantle, right? You're not ready yet. What, of the it's, one brown person and not the American, right? Yeah, on Capitol Hill. Yeah. Um, no, the number of times I get called Saurabh, it's unbelievable. I know, it's terrible. Um, and I feel like I could host this and nobody yeah. would even You're the know. editor of National Review, yes, Ramesh. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm Ramesh Panuri. Yeah. Or no, you host Breaking Points, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> that was funny because that's what Saga and Jetty, right? And, and one time Saga and I were wearing the exact same coat. I think yeah. it was... Uh, some Christmas party in in and we looked from a distance. Everybody was like, "Which <laughs> one is that again?" Yeah. Um, yeah, I was born and raised in West London to um, Tanzanian uh, Indian immigrant parents, and I always just was fascinated by American politics in the nineties, especially back in my day. Yeah. It started to um, dominate television news. Yeah. Uh, and that's relevant, right? Because, you know, politics has globalized a lot in the last 10 to 15 years because of the Internet. So to get interested in such a specific way in American politics pre-Internet is interesting. Like, I, I how, do, how does one do that? Yeah, I mean, we didn't have the Internet, like, <laughs> until, like, 1997. Yeah. So watching, and I'm born in 1986, so what, all through my childhood, just going downstairs in the morning, parents are watching television, they've got a copy of the Daily Mail on the dining table every single day. And so I'm just exposed to kind of a lot of populist right messaging. That's what the mail was, and to some extent, sometimes still is. And it was Gulf War, all that was going on. I was trying to wrap my head around it. And I was so fascinated by it that every time Saddam Hussein was on television, I would like turn it up. I wanted to hear and listen to what was really going on. And um, my mother would then, from then on, refer to Saddam Hussein as my friend is on television. Hey, Raheem, your friend's on television. <laughs> okay. Um, and, of course, uh, I was in school uh, during 9-11, and we, we, we watched that aghast, especially because the year before I'd actually first taken a trip to New York and been up the old Twin Towers, and we watched that in real time and I was glued to it for three days straight like I barely slept for the three days after that and of course you know what was on our televisions Rudy Giuliani and Donald Trump and all of this stuff all of these people that I now routinely bump into and talk to <laughs> I was a child watching them on television you know saving the world saving saving New York City and and pioneering what I thought at the time was was the good thing to happen which is go over there and kick some right mm -hmm. in, in the immediate aftermath of that and never in my mind did i think it would be you know 20 years and five trillion dollars worth of worth of not even real kicking but semi kicking um but that was losing a war to goat herders right and that was that was that was where it all began for me i suppose i was i was at the um i was at the anti-iraq war march just covering it um for for a university course that i was doing and, and observing uh, what I thought at the time were just these stupid crusties who had, you know, hippies, no idea about what was going on in the world. And turns out they were right. You know, they, they I remember they had signs like, you know, this is a corporate war. This is, you know, this is a 
a war that the that the establishment wants to enrich itself. And I remember laughing at them at the time, and and now I feel so stupid about it. But uh, I didn't stay there for long. I didn't stay a neocon for very long. I I did work for some uh, more establishmenty think tanks in London. Then after after graduating from university. But I soon realized that, that that just isn't where where my heart was. And what was that specific political moment you were getting involved in uh, at the time? What was the scene in England? Yeah, so a lot of it was Islamic uh, extremism mm-hmm. was was the big thing. And me being from a Muslim family, mm-hmm. I was particularly well-equipped to recognize what this looked like. There was mm-hmm. loads of it on my university mm-hmm. campus, for instance, at Westminster. And um, we set up a group that, that tracked where these people went on to campuses and tried to recruit for groups like Hizbut Tahrir uh, and and. You know, the ISIS beheader was at two years below me at my university. Mm-hmm. I never met him, <laughs> but um, I rumbled what was going on in my Islamic society at Westminster University, reported it to the university chancellor, the vice chancellor, and they told me to leave it alone. Don't say anything. Don't rock the boat. You'll only upset people. Leave it alone. So that was the big thing going on at that time. That's where- This would have been the early 2000s, 2004, 2005? Yeah. Uh, university was 04, 07. Okay. And that's when I met Douglas Murray and Majid Nawaz, and we all ran in the same circles back in in Westminster back in the day. All, all seven or eight of you. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, and and in the immediate aftermath of that, I went to work at a think tank, the Henry Jackson Society, focusing a lot again on on. I have a great story, by the way, of when I was working at the Henry Jackson Society. We did a report, commissioned in part by um, the New York police department and the FBI. And it was called Al-Qaeda, the US Connections. And what we would, I had very little to do with this report, but I was copy editing it. And I was flying to America to help on the John Huntsman for President campaign in 2011. And just as a, as a, a means by which to get a foot in the door of American politics, I'd never done it before. And this was the only opportunity that had arisen. How did that work? Did you send in a resume and no, you know, the, a, some, the address line was London? <laughs> no, a friend of mine was the uh, operations director at the Conservative Party's campaign headquarters. Mm-hmm. And then he became the operations director for Huntsman. And so he just called me and he was like, look, we just need some hands. You want to fly over here? We'll pick you up. I was like, fine. Sounds good to me. It was six weeks for free in Florida. You know, I had a great time. Mm -hmm. And uh, I landed. I must have booked my flight three days in advance. I landed and they pulled me out of line. They said, we're going to have to do a bag search. Um, And I said to them, why? You know, I'd never been, I'd never been profiled before like that. I said, why? He said, well, you don't really follow normal travel patterns. <laughs> you, you know, you book a flight three days in advance. You've got this massive suitcase with you that you checked. It's overweight. And There's no return stuff. flight. Right. There was no return <laughs> flight. And uh, so he, he opens my bag up. And as he opens my bag up, I just sort of like wince. I remembered I had 500 loose leaf pages of Al-Qaeda, the US connections <laughs> in my suitcase. And the guy opens it up and he starts looking through this and he goes, what is this? <laughs> I said, I said, I can explain. I can explain. <laughs> I know what this looks like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I explained and he looked me up on the internet and he came back over. He actually came back over and he said, thank you for what you do. <laughs> um, and I was, you know, as a TSA agent, but I said, no, thank you for what you do. <laughs> um, and that was, that was my first, first real, I'd studied American politics at university a little bit, but they didn't really teach us, well, they didn't really teach us anything at university, let alone the things I wanted to know. 
but that was my first real exposure to it, barring just you know reading the international section in the Daily Telegraph, mm-hmm. um, and 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 I and I was hooked immediately. You know, uh, where was campaign headquarters? Orlando. Orlando. Yeah. So, so your first extended experience in the United States was Orlando, Florida, on the John Huntsman for President. Campaign. In more ways than one, because I grew up. We grew up visiting Orlando mm-hmm. because I uh, have uh, uncles and cousins there. Mm-hmm. And so for me, for a long time, Orlando was the center of America. Yeah. Like that's where everything was. Yeah. I thought that was the coolest place on earth. Yeah. It actually happens to be the worst place on earth. <laughs> um, no offense to any Orlandoans. But uh, yeah, that was it was a cool experience. And, and, and it made me realize that Washington politics... As I as I started to understand it better, attending all you know the regular CPACs and uh, YAF conferences and and all of this, I started to realize that Washington is just is just a geographically larger Westminster. Mm-hmm. And if I can scare people into doing my bidding in Westminster, I can do the same thing in Washington. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and 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 I've been here ever since. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's it's one of those things where I don't I, I don't know about you. But I loathe this city for so many reasons that aren't even political, mm-hmm. like cultural reasons. This city is is a vacuum, right? The the closest thing to culture is that sort of semi totem pole esque African American Smithsonian building, yeah. right? Uh, have you been inside there? No. Okay, a friend's ex wife now was one of the original curators there, so we got to go on a private showing of this place the day before it actually opened to the public. And it's some of the most insight. It's like if you and I went to a museum in our honor and it was like chai, you know, <laughs> and there was like some samosas yeah. and like this is their culture. Yeah. A math textbook. <laughs> it was unbelievable. There, there was there was skin lightening cream exhibits, uh, Nike Air Jordan exhibits. I, I mean, just the lowest common denominator of like what it means to be black in America. Um, and, and, and that is you know genuinely one of the one of the things that they claim is the best thing about Washington DC is these diverse museums and all of this stuff mm-hmm. the best the museum <laughs> well the museum's gone yeah yeah right they they couldn't make that financially solvent even if they tried well, it was like 50 dollars a ticket mm-hmm. i mean it was uh, unbelievable mm-hmm. the cool the cool thing about what used to be the museum on Pennsylvania Avenue was uh they had the antenna from the world trade center in there mm-hmm. which was always moving to to see that and they had a big, big chunk of the Berlin Wall in the basement, mm-hmm. and that was equal. But the rest was just trash. Mm-hmm. The rest was just like, isn't it? Isn't it great? Isn't the media great? Yeah. And aren't journalists great? Yeah. And isn't Donald Trump making us like, <laughs> you know, the the target of so many death threats and yeah. all this stuff? Uh, no wonder they couldn't make it work. Nobody. Yeah. It's a, it was a museum for um, the gripes of of you know Taylor Lawrence. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It was. It was. It was. It was personal narcissism turned into a monument to a dying profession um we still talking about washington dc yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um so you, you you were in orlando for the presidential campaign mm. john huntsman obviously mm. did not end up becoming the nominee or president what was next um well i returned to england having really had a lot of america rub off on me um politically religiously culturally in in a short period of time, you know, mm-hmm. being hyper exposed to these things, because in England, you know, Tea Party people, as it was at the time, right? That was that was the tail end of the Tea Party movement. Were pre- literally presented as just like nut jobs who who dress up in in funny hats and and walk around with with little you know flutes doing Yankee Doodle, 
and and complaining about um, you know how black Obama is mm-hmm. and meeting so many conservatives in America, even though there weren't that many conservatives on the John Huntsman campaign, mm-hmm. um, but but getting to do that and getting to know people in DC and as a result of all of that and being exposed to it, I went back to England thinking, oh no, like we've got it all wrong. Yeah, like we actually should be having the abortion argument and the gun argument and all of this. And of course, and and, and the NHS argument. And of course, in in, in Britain, those things are taboo, mm-hmm. you know, settled issues. Abortions for everybody, guns for nobody, right? Mm-hmm. And, and the NHS is basically the God of England. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is, the national religion. Mm-hmm. And I left David Cameron's conservative party at that point, realizing that it wasn't a conservative party mm-hmm. and uh, joined... The UK Independence Party, and I was I was threatened as a result for doing so by leading Tories. Uh, you know, I remember this. Why? One. Why did they care? Because they, I, I think they. So I was on the board of the Conservative Future, mm-hmm. like the Young Republicans, mm-hmm. and so it was a big deal for me to jump over mm-hmm. parties. And they were worried about contagion. Yeah, contagion, not just, but I think they also because I was a pretty well known blogger, and I am known for not pulling any punches. So I think they started to realize, oh God, all those lines of coke that we were doing around Raheem are going to be on the front page of his website. Um, and yeah, there was there was a lot of threats. I remember at one Conservative Party conference, the last one I ever went to- What did to, you see Tory MPs do with a pig roast? I can't say on a family <laughs> podcast like this. Um, no, this one chat, Mark Clark, just prodding his finger in my chest saying, this is it, this is the end of you, we will ruin you, you know, all of this stuff. And I was just sort of laughing. I, I couldn't believe that you know, somebody was being like physically abusive towards me over my political opinion. Mm-hmm. It was no, it just it, that never happened to me before. And you know, sure enough, had you had any security threats to you because of the the anti-Muslim stuff? Only like online. Okay, you know, it was it was only people tweeting at me though that they wanted to gouge my eyes out. Nice. But no, nobody actually came and tried. Yeah, if they had, I would have handed them a spoon. <laughs> um, so. That was that was when I joined UKIP, and it was almost the same time that that Bannon first calls me out of nowhere, and alleges that people have recommended me to him to start Breitbart's London bureau, and so he told me he was going to be in town the week after that, and we met up, and we met at actually Churchill's favorite hotel in London, Browns, which also happens to be Steve's favorite hotel in London. So next time Steve's in London, everyone's going to know where to go yeah. to get him. <laughs> um, and it was not love at first sight by any stretch of the imagination. He was texting the whole time on his phone. I was drinking beer, which he didn't appreciate. <laughs> and yeah, he said, all right, look, I'm speaking in Cambridge in two days. Can we meet again after that? I said, I'm speaking in Cambridge in two days. Turns out we were not just speaking at the same conference. We were speaking on the same panel. <laughs> so we meet up after this panel and he offers me this job to run this bureau out of London. And I said, all right, well, we'll let's talk about bunts here. He said, what's bunts? Bunts is money. Mm-hmm. And he goes, oh yeah, like 30, 35. <laughs> I was like, 35 what? <laughs> he goes, thousand. I said, 35,000 what? He goes, dollars. I said, per what? <laughs> and he was offering $35,000 to me in my mid twenties. Um, a year and like in London that is wildly unsustainable yeah. right like that's and I t- I just looked at him I said Steve no offense I, I think I even said Mr. Baden. sorry <laughs> uh, 
No offense, but um, you know, I make I make sixty five thousand pounds blogging from my pants. <laughs> <laughs> so we went through like four months of negotiations, yeah. and not only did I get exactly what I wanted, but they then gave me a couple of hundred thousand dollar budget to hire a staff, mm. and that was pivotal because it was those staff on a day to day basis that were doing the the doing the hard uh, reporting that made Breitbart London the bet noir of the the Westminster set. Mm -hmm. You know, the migrant crisis was only the migrant crisis as it was nationally reported on because we reported on it and we made it untenable for the BBC. Was there any other like actual right-wing reporting outlet at the time? So the Mail, the Express, the Telegraph, they will will lean that way when it it suits them, Mm -hmm. right? Especially when they need to keep their audience up because the the Express, I think, is... 30 pence a day to buy the newspaper and they need to sell those newspapers. Mm-hmm. So every so often they'll throw some red meat to their mm-hmm. base and say, oh, you know, migrants are knocking at your door and they're going to eat your babies and all of this <laughs> stuff. But nobody was doing the like, where are they coming from? What What is what is the trajectory through Europe? How are they figuring this all out? And we were running down this information to the point where, you know, I was calling Nigel Farage at the time, the leader of the UK Independence Party, saying, hey, I, I want to get your comments on Agadez. And he was going... Agadez. <laughs> it's a bit niche. I went, yeah, it's very niche, but that's where the migrants are being processed by the EU. Yeah. And they're just waving on them through into Britain after mm-hmm. that. So, well, into Europe and through Europe into Britain. And so we got into the real nitty gritty at um, at Breitbart London. I was really, really proud of that team. They, they were, they were the, probably the best team I've worked with. Um, and the pub was literally next door to our office. Mm-hmm. And, and I lived upstairs in the office. And so, and the office was next to Conservative Campaign HQ. So everything was right there. Mm-hmm. That's where my entire life was for like those three years. And where every single battle that we had was fought on those, you know, in that, on that street, Matthew Parker Street mm-hmm. um, in London. And in the evenings when we were reporting on things that the Tories didn't like, especially, because we became known as like the UKIP publication, right? Mm-hmm. And when, we, when we'd go to the pub and the Tories would be in the pub, you know, it was obviously all, you know, this sort of thing. Well, they don't do that, but um, to the point where it was us or them. If we were at that pub, they would grab their bags and leave and go to another pub. And I know I keep talking about pubs here, but that's the culture, like mm-hmm. especially in Westminster. Yeah. At 4 p.m., you hit the pub. You don't leave until they kick yeah, you out. Yeah, it's England. Everyone's drunk by 4.35. <laughs> at least, at least. I mean, drunk at lunch, hiding it until 4.35, right? Um and and that was where I got this, you know, when I then when I when Nigel asked me a couple of like a year after that to join UKIP as his advisor, um, then Daily Mail splashed me across two pages of the mail and it said UKIP's secret weapon. And it was me like comically posing with with a gun. Do you know Austin Peterson? Yeah. Yeah. So Austin Peterson I knew from old CPACs, two thousand and nine we met. And he had me come over to his house one day and like pose with this gun for the libertarian website that he runs. And he was giving away, he was doing a gun giveaway. And I didn't even know how to hold a gun, so I was just holding the handle like this. (laughs) This is the picture the male uses of me. And it says, posing with a gun, UKIP's new American trained attack dog. Yeah. It was amazing. It was the best publicity I could have ever received. Your cachet probably went through the roof. Oh, massive, massive. Immediately... Everyone was terrified of me, mm-hmm. just terrified. And in Westminster politics, that is fear is the best motivator mm-hmm. you can get. Because and that American train thing is is definitely like a, a theme, right? And like any anywhere but here, 
the idea of someone who comes from American politics like terrifies foreigners because like there's this sense that it's like much more hardcore and much better funded, crazier tactics, etc. So, um, which is interesting because mm -hmm. I, you know, in, in a lot of instances, British politics is way rougher. Mm -hmm. Like, like the the British House of Cards is better than the American House of Cards. It was the original House right, of Cards, <laughs> but it's it's more ruthless as well. You know, there aren't, for instance, gay thruple scenes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but but British politics, you, you know. We still kill people, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Doctor David Kelly was was killed by the United Kingdom's government mm -hmm. for for whistleblowing, mm -hmm. and everybody knows it. Mm -hmm. It's not even like something they bother denying. Mm -hmm. They still they still will do things like that from time. Now I know I know that happens here as well. Like from time well, and to there, time. there's real consequences, right? Because the thing, like in American politics, like each story goes into a bucket the contents of which will determine the results of an election at mm. predetermined dates. But in the UK, as we've seen recently, things can unravel mm -hmm. and an entire government can collapse based on no prescribed timeline. So the, the the stakes are much higher. Like, it's not black swan events. It's just, you know, once in a blue moon, like, everything just collapses. And so there's real opportunities for people to be conspiratorial in like lowercase c way there aren't in the united states it's such an astute observation because uh when when britain will enter a recession or is just about to enter a recession the chancellor will go and say we're entering a recession in america when you're entering a recession the government of the day will say recession what recession <laughs> Because, like you say, it's going into a bucket, yeah. and it's going to be dealt with at the election, and they can't have you deal with that at the election. Mm -hmm. They don't want you knowing you're in a recession mm -hmm. at an election. Whereas the British government, which is pretty much just the Tory party, mm -hmm. by the way, for the past hundred years, it's mm -hmm. it, you've had a few. They are the party of government. Yes, um, they will just say, "Yeah, you're in a recession. Like, stop spending your money, <laughs> and well, you know, maybe don't fly anymore. I don't know. Yeah. You know, that's it." No more beans on toast for you. No, only beans on toast. <laughs> that's it. That, that's all you get. Yeah. Which would be fine by me, to be honest. Yeah. Um, I should serve that at Morton's. Well, <laughs> well, well, we'll get to the steak. I was trying to segue for you. Um, so, so, all right, then you are the advisor to Nigel Farage, mm. who is the head of the UKIP party. Yeah. What year is that? And what does UKIP go on to do for the next few years? That's, 20, that's 2014. Late 2014 is mm -hmm. when that happens. And to be honest with you, the, the mail was right and I didn't realize they were right. I started to deploy all these things that I had learned from my American friends in British politics. One of the things that uh, Nigel did was debate Nick Clegg, who is now Meta's Nick Clegg. But at the time, <laughs> he was the deputy prime minister of the United Kingdom. And they debated on EU membership. And after the debate, I just cut a, a 90 second like crazy attack ad sort of thing right yeah. which british politics just doesn't see we don't do those things yeah and the mirror website you know which is a which is a, which is a very left-wing publication they put this out they say ukip's new american style attack ads and all of this stuff and i'm just like yes this is amazing <laughs> because about four it was earned media on top of every actual bit of media you did and about 400 people had seen it until the mirror picked it up mm. And then it just went wild. But did you like run it on TV or was it just an no, online? we don't do TV ads in England, yeah. politi political ads in England. We, yeah. we, uh, it was just on YouTube. Yeah. And that was it. And then the mirror, the mirror made, made it huge. And so we, start, we, we kept on with that theme. 
I became Nigel's sort of surrogate voice. I would help him with his op-eds and uh, prep him before he went on BBC Question Time to debate Russell Brand and all of this stuff. The funny thing now is they're pretty much on the same side on, mm. on almost every issue. Still waiting for an apology from Brand on that one, by the way. <laughs> um, he called Nigel on, on, he called him a pound shop Enoch Powell. Mm. And, and I said, if I were Nigel, I would have just been like, Thanks. Pound shop, dollar store. Dollar store, yeah, thrift <laughs> store, whatever you want to think. Yeah. yeah. Uh, if I were Nigel, I would have just been like, cheers. It's all right. Um, and uh, yeah, so so I, I, I had, I got a funny story. I had control of his Twitter account, but he would never tweet. It was just me tweeting. I wouldn't even run them by him. I was just <laughs> tweeting at people like from Nigel Farage. And one time I got into an argument with a famous British comedian called Frankie Boyle. And he's known for being a pretty n disgusting comedian, very dark and like, you know, jokes about dead babies and stuff like that. And and so Gawain, who's the head of comms at, at UKIP at the time, is running into my office, begging me to stop arguing with Frankie Boyle on Twitter as Nigel Farage. <laughs> and I said, Gawain, here's the problem. Like, I'm winning. And when you're winning, you, you should just take those. And I knew we were winning because the media were writing it up. Yeah. And the write-ups were like, Farage is blasting Frankie <laughs> Boyle right now. Um, little did they know, it's just me sitting there. Yeah. Like, um, and um, one time, my friend Richard Jackson, he was the Conservative Party's um, head of media or something like that. But we were old friends. We were, we were on that youth board together. And <laughs> this is, I don't know the de demographics of your audience, but but I'm sure to lose respect with them for saying this. We're big Fallout Boy fans. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> and Dickie and I went to see Fallout Boy at Wembley, Wembley Arena. And as we're sitting there together, I went, Richard do you have David Cameron's Twitter account on your phone? He goes, yes. I said, I have Nigel Farage's Twitter account on my phone. Should we tag each other in at the Fallout Boy concert? Oh my God. <laughs> we didn't do it. Yeah. But uh, but that was like the two of the, probably the, the two most powerful political leaders in the country at that point in time, me and Dickie were just sitting there with with the, the ability to broadcast to millions of people from their accounts, mm -hmm. right? And And... As in your mid twenties, that is now. How old are you now? Twenty four. Right. So you're in your mid twenties. Imagine that, right? Imagine you have Donald Trump's Twitter account on mm. your phone, and it just takes every ounce of discipline, <laughs> to, you know, just not go ham. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we we got very aggressive. Um, it worked. We ended up uh, we ended up only winning one seat in the 2015 election. I unfortunately was not given the role of campaign manager. Uh, I, I think I would have been a bit too young for that. But uh, we won one seat. But importantly, you know, 13% of the national vote, which ch chipped almost exclusively away at the Conservative Party's vote. There were some from you know working class Labour heartlands that were afraid that Labour was going too woke. You know, this is woke before woke. Um, but predominantly we were chipping away at the Tory votes. And so in order to try and win some of those back, what did David Cameron, the Prime Minister and the leader of the Conservative Party do? He said, we're going to have a referendum on our European Union membership. And so with only one MP out of a chamber of 650 and 
an office more thinly staffed than yours, I'm sure. <laughs> no, I'm not even kidding. Um, we ended up getting what Nigel had been campaigning for since he first entered politics in 1992, a referendum on membership of the European Union. And it was at that point, and this is where I'm seeing so many parallels here right now, it was at that point that the conservative establishment started coming out and saying Nigel shouldn't be part of that campaign. He'll turn people off. You know, you, you want new blood, new faces, you know, the equivalent of, you know, America's Ron DeSantis today, for instance. Mm-hmm. You know, no no more Trump. We're done with him. Uh, and we fought them tooth and nail. And we we I'm certain that Nigel was the one who made the difference. Mm-hmm. It wasn't it wasn't Daniel Hannan, you know, or Matthew Elliott or any of these tangential figures. Mm-hmm. People wanted to see, people were turning up in their thousands upon thousands in town halls across England to see Nigel on tour. Every day he would do a different city. Mm-hmm. It was it was extraordinary. And and what's best about Nigel is is people don't realize and the Greta Thunbergs of the world and all of these people they don't realize he's the greenest politician in the world because he's fueled by alcohol. <laughs> But it's but it's amazing, you know. He would he would be he'd be at the pub, having a couple of pints or a couple of gins. Then he'd go and do these town halls. Then he'd go back to the pub, a couple of pints, a couple of gins, maybe a bottle of wine. Do it all again the next day. Yeah. Not even a scintilla of a hangover or anything. <laughs> just keep going, and that's where I developed all of my habits. <laughs> <laughs> that's incredible. What was the process of the the Johnny Come Latelys hopping on the Leave campaign like? You know, I'm sure there was this entire coterie of people that opposed uh, Nigel and Brexit politics for a long time. And then the referendum came along and it looked like it might actually have a chance. What was the experience of watching figures that you guys knew had been opposing you secretly suddenly come out as Brexiteers? Yeah, obviously we were happy to welcome people, you know, who had been on the fence or undecided and, and we had won the arguments in their minds. Um, it was it was very difficult to take people who had been campaigning against us for so long, mm-hmm. trying to trying to jump on. Um, Boris Johnson, for instance, is is the biggest example of that. Famously, Boris Johnson had written two speeches the morning that he declared himself for leave. He had written a Remain speech and a Leave speech. He was still on the fence the morning of the decision, and but he had been but he had been pro eu for such a long time and so it was difficult especially and especially difficult to hear him being compared to trump you know oh, that's the british trump if people only knew i mean yeah. you have to understand boris was mayor of london uh, my city so i i knew what he did as mayor for so very long i would encounter him regularly at conservative party events um he is now the member of parliament for my home uxbridge in west london so i've 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 seen he's still an MP. Oh yeah. yeah. Uh Carrie, his wife, would when I lived next door to campaign headquarters, Tory campaign headquarters, um, Carrie would knock on my bedroom window every morning and we would have a cigarette together out the window. Like we were all part of the same very small circle of people. Um so when I was here and watching people make comparisons with Boris and Trump, I what are you talking about? Mm-hmm. I had to go, I went on Charles Payne and tried to do like my most diplomatic way. <laughs> I said, I, I just call it, I called him a slippery eel. I, you know, cause you can't really say anything worse on Fox. Yeah. They'll cut you off and kick you off. Um, but yeah, it, that was, that was, that was tough. Um, having said that, I will be a touch magnanimous about it. We probably couldn't have done it without them. 
Mm -hmm. You know, we probably still needed... You needed every vote that you got. Exactly. Every single one. Some of these constituencies came down to a couple of hundred votes where maybe Dan Hannon giving a speech, you know, in his, in his, in his finest received pronunciation about Magna Carta, maybe that did appeal to some people. Um, but really what, what we wanted to do is, 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 is put the populist arguments at the forefront of Brexit. Mm-hmm. You know, and they, were, they were always more for the academic arguments. Do you want to get more involved with American Moment? Do you want to get off the couch and stop just watching a podcast about the issues you care about? Then you need to go to AmericanMoment.org slash join. If you fill that form out, one of our team members will meet with you and we'll discuss how best to get you involved in politics and public policy here in D.C. Maybe that involves you coming and working at a think tank or a congressional office. Maybe you're in business and it means just holding on for a few years until we get the next presidential administration. Maybe you're a very wealthy person who wants to give us a bunch of money. Either way, go to AmericanMoment.org slash join to meet with a member of our team and get involved more substantively in trying to save this country. It's not enough to listen to podcasts. You actually have to do something. What was that night like when the votes rolled in? Oh, how Did long? you guys think you were going to win? So that that morning, I go to Nigel's local pub near his country. Uh, uh, it wasn't a country, country, but little village um, house that he lived in. And he was there having a cup of tea. And I said to he didn't look happy. And I said to him, what do you think? And he goes, I don't think so. I said, why not? He goes... I'm not sure, but something feels off. And I said, I do too. I think it's the youth vote. He goes, I think it's the youth vote as well. Because what they did in the run-up to the referendum is they they did several illegal things to get young people registered to vote. For instance, they pretty much overlooked if somebody was registering to vote at their university and in their hometown, effectively re- allowing them to register twice, effectively allowing them to vote twice. Um. They extended the deadline to register to vote, even though the deadline had already been in place for months on end before mm-hmm. that. And they explicitly targeted young people with registering on social media. And the argument to young people was you won't get to travel in the EU as much. Literally, you're, you're, the argument was, you know, you might not have nice holidays anymore in Greece or, or Ibiza or whatever, you know. And, and young people being, you know, stupid were, were buying into it. And... That morning, yeah, I, I felt, I felt, I remember Bannon calling me halfway through the day and he was like, so what do you think? And I went, ah, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm a bit more optimistic than Nigel is. Nigel's not really optimistic. Then that evening, we all go to a friend's house in Westminster, Chris Bruni Lowe, who was one of the, he is to this day, one of the best campaigns people you'll ever meet. And Chris is hosting us all at his house. There's about 15 boxes of Domino's pizza uh, on the table, but uh, but only like, it's a small knit group of people. It's like 10 of us, right? It's like Nigel's in a circle. And Nigel goes, right, uh, I better shave before we go to the official party, which is at the top of the only tall building in Westminster, Millbank Tower. Uh, I'll be right down. And he goes up and we're all just watching Sky News and it flashes Sky News, Farage concedes Brexit loss. And I, I start running up the stairs. I go, Nigel, Nigel, what are you doing? <laughs> and he comes running down half shaved. He goes, what, what? I said, did you just talk to Sky News up there? And he goes, oh, uh, somebody from Sky called me. And I said, and what did you say? And he goes, I just said, I thought maybe we didn't have it because maybe the youth vote. 
I said, look. <laughs> I said, look at the TV. <laughs> so Nigel has to call Sky back and like rescind his concession. Yeah. He says, I didn't concede. I was just trying to be a realist. Like, you know, on the one hand, this, on the other hand, that. So they, they nuance their Chiron a little bit and we head over to the, the party, the election night party. And all of the nastiest journalists are there, you know, pointing their cameras in our faces, trying to get us looking like glum or sad or despondent, whatever. Uh, we wouldn't let them, we had a little private room and we wouldn't let them in there and we'd go in there and we'd smoke cigarettes, wildly illegal <laughs> in a skyscraper in London. Um, you know, and and we, we we were just watching them come in and and at first we were like hmm, you know it's all right it's not bad and then some of the working class labour constituencies places like Sunderland and uh, Hull and these places started coming in and we were winning them and we were winning them by margins that we never thought even possible and I I I will ne well hopefully we'll never forget the looks on the faces of the people like standing around me the general secretary of the UK Independence Party standing next to me and he's just like aghast, couldn't believe it. We just, you know, everybody's hugging at just every time somewhere is coming in. It's unbelievable. Um, and you know, there was nothing, there was nothing remotely like it. We, we go out the next, we go out in the morning, we're on, we're on the college green, which is right opposite parliament. And we're singing, we're singing Royal Britannia and we're waving <laughs> flags and everyone's exhausted because they've been up all night, but it was, it was incredible, and of course, Nigel gives the gives the the most amazing one liner at you know six a.m. when the dawn is breaking. He says, "He says, dare to dream that the dawn is breaking on an independent United Kingdom," and that was it. That was it. He didn't need to say any more than that. Yeah. That that was the phrase heard around the world at that point. And to my dying day, I will believe that without those moments, and without Nigel, and without Brexit there would have been no Trump victory in 2016 here. So much of the impetus and the momentum carried over across the ocean. So much of like, you know, what, what the corporates would call the best practice in terms of messaging carried over across the ocean. I know I know, Stephen Miller was such a, uh, um, a Nigel follower. You know, he, he, fo he really honed in on the speeches Nigel gave and, and the, the verbiage and all that. He doesn't know this, but he was actually honing in on what I had written for Nigel. <laughs> but it was amazing to watch the, the same messages carrying over across across the ocean and impacting this election. Does, I don't speak for him, but do you wish that the days after Brexit had gone differently? Um, America declared its independence in what, 1770-something? You guys seem to be big on that. 1776. Yeah, that's the one. <laughs> you didn't actually get functioning independence until about 1815. Mm -hmm. Functioning independence, practical implementation of, you know, um, the report on the subject of manufacturers, for instance, was 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 integral to America's functioning independence, industrial independence, financial independence. Um, I think that, that Brexit will take as long for Britain to wrestle powers back from from Brussels, we're still part of a lot of different EU treaties. We're still part of um, human rights uh, legislation, things like that. A lot of European legislation that was on our books that the public wanted erased. All we did was we copy and pasted it, you know, with a with a union flag on the top. Mm -hmm. 
instead. Well, we didn't want it was the point. Mm -hmm. So it's going to take an actual, you know, independence-minded government to start rolling back more of that. And that will take time. Mm -hmm. um, no, I'm, I'm pretty happy with how it's gone in the sense that um, it is probably going to lead to the ultimate total collapse of the Conservative Party. That's what we're watching today. That's what I want. Because we need massive constitutional reform in the United Kingdom. And the Conservative Party is the biggest bulwark against that. So at, and I use bulwark for a reason. At, at his apex, Boris Johnson seems like he had found the path towards supermajoritarian politics. I mean, he, the I forget when exactly it was, but yeah. a couple elections ago, yeah, nineteen. It's it seemed like he had figured it out. It was the the working class, a labor that didn't like the woke direction, consolidate the right, and 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 build truly like long-term durable governing majorities and they completely screwed the pooch why um because they were given the opportunity to you know the conservative party never misses an opportunity to to shoot itself in the foot mm -hmm. right it, it 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 is built for that uh, you know a lot of that is borne out actually in in some of the uh, popular culture references like the crown for instance you can see the machinations you know around churchill and around uh, you know the latest or the last season before the current one about uh, John Major and mm -hmm. the takeover from Thatcher and all of that. It's actually built to do that. Toryism is built to protect Toryism, not to protect the leader of the party, not to, but to protect the governing philosophy, right? And the governing philosophy is effectively oligarchy mm -hmm. um, of a certain of a, people of a certain disposition. Um, and unfortunately, it's, it's, it, it tends to be a financial disposition nowadays because um, we went through sort of Reaganomics as well, right? Where, where conservatism was redefined into, into you know, free markets. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, Privatise the railroads. Yeah, yeah, well, privatise your grandma, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, so, so the Boris thing, he got captured by his wife, right? Remember, he was married. I think he was married twice or three times before Carrie came along. But, you know, I gave her a nickname that stuck in England, Carrie Antoinette. <laughs> she was all for, you know, spending millions of pounds redecorating the Downing Street apartment that she lived in at taxpayer expense. While Boris Johnson was cutting, you know, fundamental public investments that were good for core national infrastructure, mm -hmm. you know. And so so she really became the, the figure of, of, of a lot of what was going wrong. People think that the Tory party got rid of Boris Johnson. No, they didn't. They got rid of Carrie Johnson. Boris was just in the way. And um, Carrie worked for the Clinton Initiative. She is a massive uh, eco-warrior nut job, like Greta style. Um, and she's a big, big, big uh, Joe Biden fan, like massive Joe Biden fan. You go and look at pictures of Boris and Carrie meeting uh, Joe and uh, Jill. And look at Carrie's face. That's the best moment of her life. You can see it. And that's who was really controlling a lot of, of things in Downing Street. Now, over here, I understand that your your first lady is 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 is, is a you know, I don't know if it's a constitutional role, but it's there is a, a office of the first lady, mm -hmm. right? Um, we don't have that. Your wife is not supposed to get involved in in the running of the country. Mm -hmm. She was hiring staff into political staff into Downing Street. She was hiring her buddies to run government. She hadn't been elected. 
And so I think what the Conservative Party had realised in that moment, there were so many mini scandals up till that point. You remember Party Gay and, you know, Boris Johnson blew some birthday candles out during COVID lockdowns and so on and so forth. But there were so many mini carry oriented scandals that I think the Conservative Party thought, well, look, a major thing is going to blow up in a second. I don't mean to be unkind about this, but carry is, carry is uh, let's say, um, known for uh, being being very friendly to many gentlemen in Westminster. OK, um, and so they feared that this was going to snowball into into a, into a major scandal about the prime minister's wife and her influence on government. So on and so forth. So that's why they got rid of him. Um, now, have we had better since then? Obviously not. Um, but I think that this is, they're on a downward tra- trajectory into mm-hmm. total destruction. And that I think is good for the country. Mm-hmm. Why did uh, trust collapse so epically? <laughs> um so do you know how while that, simultaneously being the person who won in the first place yeah but won right like how did how did she win what was the process by which she was made the leader of a nuclear power g7 country you know people can laugh about the size of england and the beans on toast and all of that but from a geopolitical perspective it still matters mm-hmm. and how did she get there well she had a popular mandate of z- zero she was chosen by members of the Conservative Party, uh, parliamentary members of the Conservative Party, members of Parliament. It would be as if, you know, uh, House Republicans pick the president. Mm-hmm. There's no there's no legitimacy. Mm-hmm. And so then when she goes to the public and she says, right, uh, here's my agenda. It's it's radical. It's, 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 you know, corporate tax cuts. We're going to bring bankers' bonuses back in. You know, really stimulate the economy that way, you know, from the top down public goes, who the hell are you? Mm-hmm. We didn't choose you, and we certainly didn't choose this. And so she starts tanking immediately in the polls, and what did the Conservative Party do? Is do what they do best and pull the trigger again. Mm-hmm. So she's gone. Mm-hmm. And then what's the next choice after that? There wasn't one. There was a coronation of a non, another unelected, non... See, the Conservative Party used to be run as a democracy. They have a conference every year, and at that conference... Members, paying dues-paying members of the Conservative Party, which can be anybody, just got to pay your dues, go and vote. Vote on this policy, vote on this policy, and that forms the national platform, right? They don't do that anymore. David Cameron got rid of that. He centralised the entire Conservative Party apparatus. It's now donor-led from Westminster. So even ordinary Tory members now barely get a say in what their party believes Mm -hmm. and how the party behaves. And so they're losing members again. I mean... During Churchill's time, um, the party had, I think, 1.1 million dues-paying members. Wow. It now has, I think, just about 100,000. So so they're not getting the money from the membership anymore to run the, the party apparatus. So where do they turn? Hedge funds, billionaires, globalist class. And so the globalist class is fine. We'll give you money. You're not allowed to have conservative philosophy, though, anymore, mm-hmm. you know? So that's where we are. How do you think the Sunak thing will play out? Badly. Really badly. Harmful for me and you. <laughs> you <know? laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I think, I think. look. Bad for the reputation of Indians everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
Yeah, he's 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 very. He's, Do not endorse. <laughs> no, quite. He's very bad. He's he's very globalist. He's very World Economic Forum. He's very um, China exposed. Um, you know, very multilateralist. Much Zelensky. You know, all of that. So yeah, it'll end badly. Here's the great thing, though. Okay, so we'll at, at the time of speaking, I think the Labour Party has a twenty point lead over the Conservative Party in the polls. Uh, like I think that's unprecedented, by yeah. the way. I think that if Nigel jumps back into politics in a, in a serious way, he can then take another 10-15% away from the Conservative Party, which leaves them in single digits. Mm-hmm. Conservative Party's never polled in single digits. Mm-hmm. Um, now, it will probably lead to a... It has been the most durable governing party in the Western world for 100 years. Correct. Yeah. And then you're going to have a Labour-SNP coalition. The Labour Party is the party of, you know transgender flags the snp is the party of uh breaking the united kingdom as a political mm-hmm. union mm-hmm. um irish transgender flags <laughs> se- 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 sending sending scotland scottish uh to um brussels yeah. you know being part of the eu again um and 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 real like ultra ultra uh socialist nationalism mm-hmm. and you're going to have this very shaky coalition between Labour and the SNP. It's especially shaky because Labour quite still needs Scottish votes for the Scottish Labour Party to govern as a majority in Parliament. But in doing a coalition with the SNP, they'll effectively be selling out the Scottish Labour Party at the same time. So it'll be a shaky coalition. They will immediately uh, endeavour to uh, change the British constitution Um the way Blair did, you know, he 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 vandalized the constitution in his first three years. You know, we don't have like a written constitution like like you guys do. Um, there are all sorts of things that the prime minister and the parliamentary majority can do that don't require like a constitutional convention. They can just say, hey, this is primary legislation. We're changing the way votes happen in the United Kingdom now. And that's what happens. And so Blair got rid of hereditary peerages in the House of Lords and turned it into just kind of a, a grace and favor. You know, I, I promote my buddies who are lobbyists and my donors to the House of Lords. You know, that's how this guy who was leaking, uh, the British ambassador, uh, Kim Darrock, he was leaking American national security secrets to CNN while he was working as our ambassador to Washington, D.C., and he's now a member of the House of Lords in Britain for that. You know, Theresa May elevated him there and because Theresa May didn't like Trump and, and she approved of this behavior. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, Labour will try and do that. The good part of that is that the public will see through it quite quickly. Mm-hmm. And then they start to look at, all right, what do we really want here? Like, what kind of party can we really stomach? And if you can take the best of the Conservative Party, which is about, you know, we have like the equivalent of like a Freedom Caucus sort of thing, mm-hmm. which is about 12 to 15 members of parliament, a handful of their long-standing donors and, and whatever, and almost all of their members, by the way, mm-hmm. almost every Conservative Party member is a is a Conservative at heart, I mean, outside of London, mm-hmm. right? Um, and shift that into a new party that party can govern for the next hundred years mm-hmm. is there any obvious contenders for who would lead that party i get the sense nigel doesn't want to do this anymore yeah but as i always say to him you know nigel sometimes you don't choose your fate your fate chooses you right mm-hmm. and and 
he's he's at another of those moments. Mm-hmm. Um, I I talk to him about this at least once a week, um, and I, I've said to him really for the last two years that he needs to get back in. The problem for Nigel, I think, is twofold. Number one. It's it's the most miserable job in the world mm-hmm. to lead a, a small party, have the press rifling through your trash, following you everywhere, taking pictures of you, you know, trying to Diana you, you know, um, and you don't get a personal life, you don't get a private life, you don't get anything like that. He's lived that once already, mm-hmm. remember, for a long time. Um, at the same time. They lie about you. They call you Nazi. It's people are throwing bricks through your windows at home, targeting your children at their schools. I remember Nigel's young daughters were personally targeted at school because of who their dad was. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, his some somebody somebody had slashed his tires on his car once, and he found out while he was driving. You know, could have been literally could have killed him. Mm-hmm. Um. I was physically attacked with a ladder when I worked for him. Some some Greenpeace activist, you know, hit me in the face with a ladder. And so there are all these all these things that you have to go through, and you have to just stomach uh, being in that being in that because um, it's not like here where if you're the party leader, you're going to have twelve security guards around you. You're not. Mm. You t- you're probably taking the tube. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, and then the second part of it for Nigel, I think, is is he looks around him. And there, there are people that I'm sure he likes and he gets along with, but I don't think he sees anybody who can sort of be level with him and even take over from him after five years or ten years of, of leading a new political movement. Um, yeah, there seems like it just... I, the thing that's shocking to me about British politics is there doesn't seem to be an incentive system that allows for the creation of more Nigel Farage's those kind of charismatic leaders that are capable of capturing the national imagination that way. I mean, are there any other people? Maybe, you know, again, not that much news gets across the pond. Is there anyone that people should be paying attention to up and comers? There's, there's, um, there was no, there was no mechanism to create Nigel Farage either, by the mm-hmm. way, you know, um, he was just a naughty boy at school who questioned authority all the time and never stopped. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there used to be, by the way, that education in the classics, for instance, was one of those ways that you, you would create, that's why that's why they pilloried Enoch Powell, mm. by the way, um, who was for the audience members who don't know was one of the best prime ministers we never had. Mm-hmm. He was he was his quote of Virgil's Aeneid in his nineteen sixty eight speech about mass migration. They twisted it into being a literalist. He said he said like the Roman, I see the river Tiber foaming with much blood. And of course, all the tabloid newspapers says Enoch predicts rivers of blood in Britain's streets. <laughs> you know, whereas anybody who's read the Aeneid knows that 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 this is the prophet Sybil saying you're going to struggle as a migrant because migration is hard, and you will toil, but you you may well find that it's worth it in the end, right? Mm-hmm. To build a new city, mm-hmm. um, and and they totally lost that because because by then nobody was educated in the classics. Yeah, you know, so so Enoch was sort of speaking above people's heads. Um. I've forgotten your question. Oh, who? Who? Gosh. Um, yeah, I don't. Look, I don't mean to offend anybody over there because there are plenty of, like, cool people. Majid Nawaz is cool and Lawrence Fox is cool and, you know, Dan Wooden's cool and all of this stuff. But there's nobody, there's nobody statesman-like, mm-hmm. like you say, right? Nigel had the ability to both be the guy you absolutely want to be chain-smoking outside the pub with and the guy you want to see at the dispatch box 
lacing into Herman van Rompuy in the European Parliament. Mm-hmm. You know, he somehow managed to combine those two those two traits. There isn't anybody like that now. So speaking of men who are pulled back into the arena, you were at Mar-a-Lago mm. a few days ago. What yeah. did you see there? Yeah, I was pulled back into the arena. <laughs> um, yeah, look, he is. He is back in the arena. Um, I saw lots of things that that would be, uh, it would be churlish to mention because of the fact that, you know, Mar-a-Lago is a private club still. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so you get to interact with lots of people in a private setting, close up, right? But in the public part of that was was his announcement event, which which was you know hundreds and hundreds of people. Uh, I, you know I don't know how many hundreds, but it, it it was up there. Like it wouldn't surprise me if a thousand people had passed in and out of those doors that day. You know I don't know if that, they were all in the same room at the same time. And and and, and energized people, you know, people who who do feel like. The last election, the presidential election, was was unfairly uh, pulled out from under them. Whether they believe it was because of, you know, machines and gun battles in Rome and, and whatever, or they believe, you know, that mail-in drop boxes and all of that stuff is wildly unconstitutional, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you know, immoral practices such as covering up Hunter Biden's, you know, discrep- uh, uh, indiscretions and so forth. They feel it was stolen from them, right? And and they and they want to go again. They want to do over, and so they want to put their. They very clearly want to put their shoulders to the wheel. Um, his speech was longer than it needed to be. I think um, they all are. You've never heard of a Trump speech that was shorter than it needed to be, um, but it was really interesting to me because I I watched it in the room, and then the next morning I watched it on on television on my phone right on on, on YouTube back and it, those say obviously the same speech two different speeches mm-hmm. in the room. And it was part acoustics. It was part too many people. It was part media at the back of the room, chit chatting and, and whatever. But you could you could barely hear when he was like rising and falling. Right? It was, it just sounded flat the entire way. When you went and li- actually listened to it, when you can hear it from him in a microphone, mm-hmm. you you could hear the nuances. And there were nuances in tone and in 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 um, tam, but there were also nuances in in verbiage and one of the ones that i caught was right at the end of the speech where he's doing his usual thing you know make america safe again make america strong again you know and then he usually ends with we will make america great again but he added one or somebody added one he said make america glorious again so that's really interesting especially from like somebody who's written speeches because that's jarring that doesn't flow Mm -hmm. the rhythm is broken so it's intentional you don't you don't by accident break the flow of that make america glorious again and for me you know people will say i read too much into trump mm-hmm. i actually think we don't read enough into trump mm-hmm. um cuz i think and i've done you know substack reviews of his interviews with bob woodward and 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 um the book that maggie haberman and this is my same criticism of them by the way is they think they're just talking to the apprentice donald trump but people don't understand that Trump, just because he's not a, a literalist or, or just because he only shows you the literal side of him, that there isn't this constant like subconscious thing going on with him. And I think there really is. His brain works differently to a lot of people's brains that, that I've spoken to. Because sometimes he can look right through you, right? 
and he's doing the glad handing kind of thing. Sometimes you'll catch him with, with, a, with a word or a phrase or a sentence and he'll remember something from 20 years ago like this and go, oh yeah, 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 that thing with the thing and that and that. And you're like, well, how did you know all of that detail, right? Mm-hmm. Nigel's very similar to that, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, and glorious for me says more about spiritual battles than it does political battles. And if I were him and his people and his team, I would stick to that theme. Because America, especially young America, and if if the midterms were anything of a guide, young America really needs, you know, kick up the ass spiritually and physically. Um, But young America for me seems to be either interested in signaling their depression or signaling their victories, right? They're either literally TikToking about the depression antidepressants that they're on or they're dancing like idiots with with smirks on their faces right mm-hmm. there's very little nuance going on in gen z mm-hmm. and i think glory is something they understand better than greatness i think young people don't even particularly care if america's great again but i think they would care if america's glorious again you know mm-hmm I don't know. Maybe I'm reading too much into it. No, I think that anyone who look, I'll put it this way: Trump is a is a man of many novel coinages, and any time you hear one, it's worth paying attention to. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think and I think that there's this weird thing we do in history, which is that uh, most people are very bad at recognizing history being made when they're seeing it, uh, and that's normal. Like you know, yeah. it, it's it's only through the the rarefying process of something happening a hundred years ago that you can actually have the critical distance you need to look at something like this. And sometimes people get silly with it, right? They start, you know, counting the the vowels and, you know, trying to read too much into it. But this is, I think, obviously interesting. Um, well, but I mean, I'm interested in your opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you what do you feel about that specifically to, uh, you know, about the difference between greatness and glory? Well, great greatness is, you know, if you if you if you're the bell curve, you know, three standard deviations on either side. Greatness is a second standard deviation goal. You know, we're going to be great top decile. Mm-hmm. Glories, we're we're aiming for top point oh oh one percent. That's 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 when you came home with a B plus. Yeah, <laughs> and your mum said, yeah. "Why is it in an A plus?" Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, more like an A being, you know, greatness. Right. A plus is, right. is glory. Um, and it is, you know, I, I I think that there's, you know, Trump's older now than he was when he first started doing all this, and and I think he has become slightly more sentimental over time mm-hmm. uh, and 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 glory strikes me as something that that someone with sentiment in their bones says you know it's it's it is much more romantic than greatness um and it is potentially a a um a retort to the accusation of revanchism mm-hmm. you know ma- ma- make america great again can be like it's like status quo ante give me the 1960s Make America glorious again is like something else entirely. Yeah. It's it's like, you know, manifest destiny, yeah. um, uh, Lady Liberty floating across the 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 continent. Um, See, I wouldn't put "Make America Glorious Again" on a hat, <laughs> but I would put "Glory" yeah on a hat. Yeah, you know, yeah, he should. Yeah, you know those people over at Mar-a-Lago. I've told send them. them all. This I've stuff. told them. <laughs> I have told them. If you see it, came from me. Mm-hmm. I'll it, take your donations at. <laughs> yeah. So you're Send your donations to the American moment. Well, uh, yes, indeed. Uh, but uh, w- one of the interesting threads that you touched on in 
in your description there is to do with the midterms, and you are one of the few commentators on the right that, as far as I'm aware, were actually pessimistic about the midterms going into them. Why? You were clearly right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm pessimistic about... Do you have any stock picks for me? <laughs> yeah, I'm pessimistic about everything that the Republican Party touches, like the institutional Republican Party touches. Um, so so that's a default position for me. Um, but, but I always try and back up my my, my gut, opi- gut mm-hmm. opinions with, with, you know, and, and I will change them. If I'm wrong, I'll, I'll accept that and change it. Very rarely happens. Um, I do a column every month for a small English magazine. I think it's got 150 subscribers, right? But I, I believe that they're traditional conservatives. Um, they're young guys and, and they're doing something. Ring any bells? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I voluntarily... You know, they don't pay me for this. I voluntarily file them a dispatches from DC every month. And I've done that for about nearly a year now. And I went back through my columns, uh, specifically August and September, I I was talking about the midterms. And I in both of those columns, because I don't know if you're anything like me, I forget half the things I've written, mm-hmm. you know. And I went back and I was like, oh, gosh, I, I was really pessimistic. I said no red wave. I said complacency, you know. McLeadership was going to screw it up, all of that stuff. So I just happened to look at a lot of the messaging coming out of a lot of the uh, NRCC and NRSC run campaigns. And a lot of the messaging was just Joe sucks, the economy sucks, you know, Kamala cackles, isn't she awful? Um, vote for us, you know? And that's, that's just not going to cut it. Mm-hmm. But, but remember, voters. As much as as much as DC likes to sneer at voters, ice cream man bad, right, right. <laughs> but as much as yeah, exactly. No, no, that's such a good way of putting it because because everything that we claimed the other side were doing for four years, we ended up doing mm-hmm. right. And as much as voters like to hear about how bad the other side's doing, they actually do want to hear like your positive proposals for things, and they weren't hearing much of that. There wasn't much of like, okay, so here is like you know, our three-point plan and blah, blah, blah. You know, I've designed campaign leaflets for for political candidates in Britain. And the most important thing, you know, apart from the, the legal imprint, because otherwise, you know, they'll, they'll, the British government will sue you into the ground, um, is, is, you know, here are the three points, the takeaways, right? And, and so it's naming big and big takeaways. You have to cram that onto a leaflet. Everything else is tangential. And I just didn't see that coming out of the Republican Party. I couldn't have told you what the three top Republican priorities were going to be if they retook the House and the Senate after the midterms. Could you? More fundraising emails. <laughs> but honestly, yeah. go on. No. Like, I don't know. All I know is, yeah, well, we're, well, we're going to block Biden. We're going to block his judicial appointments. People don't like to hear just negative campaigning all the time. As much as of an expert in negative campaigning as I am, mm-hmm. that's why I know that, right? Um, so it didn't seem to me. And then you add in the complacency factor. You add in the red wave factor. You know, conservatives going around the country, going on social media, just going, oh, obviously it's in the bag. Why would you ever tell the voting public that you don't necessarily need their vote? Because that's what they hear. When you say there's going to be a red wave, all they hear is, oh, good, I don't need to line up at the polling station. And that's what they did for months and months on end. You are squashing your own vote. 
And in a lot of these races, it was only a couple of hundred of votes that that they lost by. Mm-hmm. I've, I've no doubt in my mind that the fault lies about 1% with Donald Trump for his Oz endorsement and, and so on and so forth. And 99% with the McLeadership and Tom Emmer specifically and their and NRCC specifically. And, and, and the text messages that they send you. Yeah. Well, and this does comport really well with, with what actually ended up happening because you look at the places where you did have significant gains. Um, it was in deep blue states. And so the purely where negative... Where the fight had to be had. Right. So the right. purely negative messaging works when it's literal, like totalitarian hellscape all <laughs> around you. Yeah. That, that's the only circumstance. But anywhere else, and most people are mostly fine. Like, you know, they, they, it, nothing feels so bad that they're going to engage in radical action yet. In those places, pure negative message, they're like, why should I go to the polls? Yep. That checks out. Yep. Interesting. Raheem, where can people keep up with all of your other prescient takes and everything that you're working on? I spend a lot of time trolling Matt Schlapp on Twitter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there. Ah, yes, this is one thing we have to talk about before you leave. Uh, <laughs> you, 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 I'm about to segue you, you twice now. Yeah, I know, I know. So, so, so you, uh, you also haven't even let me talk about the DeSantis stuff yet. I know. Which I'm, I'm mortified by. I know. Well, next time. Next time. Um, so you are uh, in a fight about uh, best DC steakhouses. What is the best DC steakhouse? Yeah. So, so this is a complicated question. Mm-hmm. This is the hardest question mm-hmm. that you've asked me so far, mm-hmm. because there are good steakhouses for hanging out at, and there are good steakhouses for eating steak at. Mm-hmm. So, if people are coming to DC, or even if you live in DC, I've spent a lot of time. They, you know, Matt Gates calls me Steakhouse Kassam. That's his nickname <laughs> for me. So, take Steakhouse Kassam's word for it. Morton's is the best to just go hang out at. I don't really eat at Morton's. It's mm-hmm. not particularly good food um, but it has a smoking terrace you can have cigar sometimes you, you know might even go pipe which i'm trying to get you into by the way mm-hmm. um and um you know it's just a great place they, they I've, I've been to morton's shout out to danny who's the the best bartender there uh for the last gosh 13 years now mm. nearly and multiple times a week Easily. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. There were times where it was every night a week for a long time. <laughs> yeah. And and the only thing that would ever take us away from Morton's back in the day was the Trump Hotel. Mm-hmm. Is it was either one of those two places. Mm-hmm. We I used to have a thing called Raheem's Triathlon, which was you start drinks at Morton's, dinner at the Bombay Club, and then post perandials at the Trump Hotel. <laughs> and if you could if you could last with me throughout that, then I knew you were a good one. <laughs> trust you. Um because you know, Churchill was never trust a man who doesn't drink. And um, the best for steak in town, you got, there's a bone-in filet at the Monocle, which is pretty, pretty epic. Uh, bourbon steak. Monocle guys are patriots. They, yeah. They were good during COVID. Yeah. They, they did not uh, obey this regime. Yeah. They're big fans. There's a there's a bourbon steak in the Four Seasons in Georgetown, which, but if you go there, you've got to be willing to drop a G, mm-hmm. you know, it's expensive. Um, and then, you know, I'd probably go Mastro's. Just because I like that like thousand degree plate that they bring, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, because then you can la- like actually order rare mm-hmm. and just let it sit on the plate as long as you want mm-hmm. for it to cook. Mm-hmm. This is the most important part of this interview. It's actually the of part course. that I've been most passionate I'm, about. I'm, I'm, I'm surprised <laughs> that you would reveal these things to our very DC centric audience because now there's going to be a bunch of people showing up at these places. Well, look, in my old age, yeah. as you often remind me, yeah. I, I am no, no longer able to drink six or seven martinis a night. So yeah. I need somebody to pick up the financial slack to keep these places <laughs> open. So you should all go to all of these places and tell yeah. them I sent you. 
Yeah. Well, on that note, uh, people can find you at Substack, at all of it. Yeah. Substack, Twitter, and, and at Morton Steakhouse, among other places. Um, have you been back to the Trump Hotel since? I won't. The end times. Yeah. Same I here. I haven't. I haven't gone. I haven't gone. It, that was hallowed ground. Okay. Mm-hmm. They desecrated it. Yes. We will take it back one day. Absolutely. We'll be reconquered. Raheem, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Hope you guys enjoyed that. It was a lot of fun taping it. Definitely one of the longer episodes I think we've done recently, but we've been going along a lot recently, mostly because we've had some stellar, stellar guests. Thank you guys, as always, for listening. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, please go ahead and rate and review it. Uh, Five-star review. If you say something interesting in the comment, we'll be sure to read it out on this show. If you're on YouTube, be sure to subscribe. I found out that like the vast majority of you who watch on YouTube are not subscribers. That's terrible. You should fix that. Click the little bell notification and be sure to check out the backlog of this show. If you've got some traveling coming up for the winter, we try to make each and every one of these episodes age very well. Um, here, let me throw out one specific one that's uh, amusing in this context. A board member of American Moment, Senator J.D. Vance, is now Senator-elect J.D. Vance. Uh, And so we did an episode with Luke Thompson a couple months ago on how to win a Senate race. Uh, Pretty interesting analysis of what went down in the primary. Uh, And it's aged all very, very well. Um, There's a ton of other awesome stuff. Be sure to check out all of it. uh, And we will see you guys next week here on Moment of Truth. Moment of Truth is an American Moment Studios production filmed at the Conservative Partnership Center. Our podcast is produced and edited by Jake Mercier and Jared Cummings. Our intro music is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich. Don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms, and you can go to AmericanMoment.org to learn more.